0: Well, today is Resurrection Sunday. It is the highlight of the church's calendar. Obviously, for us who are believers, we really celebrate this every day. But there is a reality of coming to the historical day on the calendar and to remember. And to have a lot of joy. And as we come to focus on that joy... What I would like to do is to take you on a trail and show you how something that you may never have thought was connected, or maybe you think about it, but this is going to reinforce the connection. And I wrote in my notes as I started in preparation for this message that I wanted to make it clear, I don't want this to be a bunny trail. And then I realized, wait a second, you don't want to use that expression because. We get so upset as Christians with the whole idea of bunnies and eggs and conversation I had with my wife about this. That was pretty funny, I thought. But this isn't a bunny trail. I want to show you how something is really connected. And what I would like to talk to you about is this. Make-believe. When we talk about make-believe, it's talking about using your imagination. And the idea... Of being a child, and when you're a child, you really love to play and think with your imagination. I know whether I was a cowboy or an Indian, or if I was like a spaceman. I think I don't think I was any more unusual than any of you. It is so fun to be an explorer and to to think that you can, you know, go places. And and run around in your backyard and think that you're on the moon or a different planet or something like that. Make believe is so enjoyable. And you get older and then you read and you watch movies and it becomes more and more a part of you. And as you get older, you start to move away from it. But then we have children. And when we have children, we love to play with them, we love to play make believe with our children. And I can remember sitting and playing these, you know, prince and princess games with my kids and maybe taking an afternoon and just playing with my daughter, being married. For those of you heard, she got engaged this week. And I kept thinking about how we would have tea parties, maybe for an hour, her and I, just playing with that imagination. And so as a parent, it's one of the greatest things because you get to go back into the idea of all the good that comes out of playing with make-believe. But then there's always the downside with make-believe. And when you're a kid, you always think there's a monster in the closet or there's a monster under the bed, right? And what do your parents come up and tell you? There's no monster under the bed. There's no monster in the closet. It's make believe. It's just your imagination. It's not real. And then as you get older and you start watching maybe scary movies, and I'm not advocating that. I don't like scary movies, especially after what I did as an unbeliever growing up. You see the curse of Frankenstein, the curse of Dracula, and then you get scared and you're seven or eight or nine or ten. And You want your parents to keep a light on, or you want your parents to come and sleep with you, and and your parents want you to understand, it's all make-believe. There really isn't this monster there. There really isn't a curse, because it's all make-believe. And we, as parents, continue to reinforce that. We always think that, and we watch these movies, and we hear about these curses, and we say, it's all make-believe, the curse of Frankenstein. And then I thought to myself, it's fascinating as I have gone through life, I've loved sports and I've heard of the curse of the Bambino. I don't know if you guys know about that one, that the Boston Red Sox would never win the World Series because they got cursed for trading Babe Ruth. Or the curse of the Billy Goat, the Chicago Cubs would never win a World Series because of uh, of what they did to a certain Billy Goat one time. And, and, and then we learned, what do we say? Well, that's all make-believe. And people would even say before the Cubs won the World Series or before Boston won the World Series. It's all make-believe. I, I, and then you, you hear of things like the curse. Was it the curse of the Hope Diamond? I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Hope Diamond. If you ever get to go to Washington, D.C., there's this diamond that's in the Smithsonian Institute. And I remember about 12 years old, I got to see it. And the curse was that anybody that owned it, bad things would happen to them. Their family would die. But then people would say, no, it's not true. And it's not, it's it's just all make-believe. And then there is the curse of King Tut's tomb. And I don't know if any of you ever had the opportunity to go to King Tut's tomb, but I did. And King Tut's tomb had a curse that they thought anyone that ever went into King Tut's tomb would die. Well, thousands of tourists have gone through there, and they all haven't died. it's just, it's it's, it's all make-believe, what I want you to understand is, though, as we come on this Lord's Day, that there really are curses in this world that are not make-believe. And, 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 and I think it's part of the disconnect where sometimes we think this world, this world doesn't have this spiritual dynamic That has brought Or has in it A curse We're not going to turn there But if you were to turn in your Bible To Genesis chapter 3 When Adam and Eve Sin and Adam being From Friday night the federal head Sins and brings All of humanity into sin God first of all Curses a serpent Then he Tells the woman, in essence, a curse. Even though he doesn't use the word, he literally uses the word "curse" with the woman. He tell with, with the snake, and then he literally tells the woman she was going to be pain in childbirth. And then he tells the man the ground is cursed, and to, because of it, your sin you will return to the dust. This is a curse from God. This isn't make believe. This isn't something that is. Just like a boogeyman under the bed that you are fearful of and he's not really there. God has seriously put a curse in your world. God has put a curse and you say, well, wait a second. Why would God do that? Because he wants us to always know that there is something wrong with this world. It is out of love that God has put these curses on the world. And... and What do curses do? Curses take joy out of life. And I was talking to an individual who has sacrificed so much and given his life to the Lord. And he was telling me about the last two years of his life. We were on the phone for an hour last night. And he was telling me just how he is just so hardened now as a believer because of all the bad that as he's gotten older where he feels like he's just kicked in the face. His wife has left him. People have turned against him. People within the church have turned against him. And, 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 and lies have gone out and, and things that have just happened bad. And, and, and yet the reality of it is, is I don't think he's anything unique in the world because I know that every person in this auditorium this morning, you've had struggles. You've had things where you feel like life has kicked you in the face. And all of this is because God wants you to understand there is a curse in this world. And, and, and when you look at people who are depressed and you look at people who are frustrated and you look at people who are discouraged and you look at people who are scared, living in fear, all of this is tied where God wants you to have those reactions because God wants you to realize this world is wrong. And, and if everything, even us as, as believers, life went smoothly, then it would be a deception. Because all of a sudden, you wouldn't have the burden to rely upon Christ and the burden to tell people about Jesus. Listen, you're depressed this morning. You're frustrated with life. You're discouraged. We live in a cursed world. And, and, and where does this all come back to the resurrection? Well, today what I want to do is talk about the incredible joy and hope from the resurrection. And I want to go into the scriptures and I want you to see how the resurrection of Jesus, tied to the death of Jesus, has given us all a joy and a hope. And so I'm hoping that you will understand more of how the curses have been lifted, even though they're not fully gone even And why today we should have incredible joy. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, it is one of the four accounts of the specifics of the resurrection. And if you're unfamiliar with the Gospels of Jesus Christ, know there are four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels end with an account of when Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. I'm just reading one of them in Matthew 28. The setting is, is that Jesus Christ has lived on earth for 30, we believe 33 years. The last three years of his life, he has walked on water. He has healed blind people. He has brought people back from the death, dead. He has taught in an incredible way that's given people the great understanding of the scriptures. He has never done anything wrong. He has never told a little white lie. He has never done anything purposeful to hurt anyone. He has never done anything vengeful, and yet they have killed him. His disciples, his followers, one week ago prior to this event, have entered with him into Jerusalem anticipating that he would be named king. But as we studied last week, he realized that he'd already been rejected. And it was just a matter of formality that he would come in on that Palm Sunday and come into Jerusalem and then be rejected. And he told them about a delay. He knew that was coming, but they still couldn't anticipate it. And then he was killed before their very eyes. And we know from other scriptures, they're in great despair because all their hope and all the dreams that they had and finally thinking that life wasn't going to have to deal with oppression and Deal with all the ramifications of sin. And so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 28. And it says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. This is the grave of Jesus. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who he has crucified. I don't know if you have already picked up on it, but this is the second time the word fear has been used. It's going to be used again. It's it fascinating on this day that fear continues to creep in. Verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said, come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead Behold, he's going ahead to you in the Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran and reported to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Incredible joy comes over them as they realize that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. What does that mean for us? Why should we have this great joy? Yes, it's wonderful that Jesus is alive, but we're going to see how much it pertains to us the very first thing that I want you to see and very first thing I want you to grasp is I want you to understand that we see that your death doesn't end life. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. It's interesting that once we see the account of Jesus for the rest of the New Testament, we get explanations and deep, deep, profound theological truths throughout the epistles, the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, we get to understand who Jesus is and we get to understand more of what he did for us. And as we come to the book of Hebrews, the book that we believe was written prior to 70 AD, prior to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, that the author is trying to tell us about the superiority of Jesus And he wants us to understand what Jesus has done for us as a high priest. And I want to point out, the reason we don't have priests in our church anymore is because, and I say anymore in the sense like from the Old Testament when they had priests, is the priest is a go-between. And now Jesus is our ultimate go-between. We don't need anyone to go between God and us. You all have direct access now because of Jesus to go directly to him because he serves as the high priest between God the Father and you. And as the author of Hebrews is talking, he wants us to understand what Jesus has done for us. And he talks about the fact, and I'll pick up in verse 9, but we don't see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. And that's talking about the fact that Jesus was God who came to earth as a man. And he says, namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross, I believe he dies for everyone. Amazingly, that is no longer the predominant Christian view today. And if anyone would like to talk more about it, I won't go down that path, but I can tell you Jesus died for everybody and I can prove it. Verse 10 for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. And this is part of where we live in a upside down world, a cursed world, that the way for Jesus to fix everything was for him to pay the penalty that we owed. We have quip little sayings. He paid a penalty, well, we owe a debt we cannot pay and he paid a debt that we could he he didn't owe. i'm messing that up the reality of it is is jesus pays that penalty we owed our life and god through this doctrine that we studied friday night and if you weren't here friday night i'd encourage you to listen to the podcast we talked about substitutionary atonement but i gave more illustrations so that you could understand it that is what happened jesus took our place And it says down and jump down to verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. We don't believe the payment was made to the devil. We believe God the Father as the ultimate judge received the payment. But we believe that Satan, who is real and also not make-believe, is able to call upon God and point to God law and say, God, you have laws. The ways of sin is death. You have laws that people who sin should be punished. And Satan, we learn from the study of the book of Revelation, is constantly accusing people. His demonic hierarchy, which is also not un- 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 make-believe, really did see what any of you did privately this week. Anything that you did in secret, anything that you did in darkness, Satan saw through a demonic world that you may not want to believe is there, but it is. And he reports it up and Satan says, do you know what Mike did? Do you know what he did? Do you know what she did? And so I believe that's what it's getting at, that the devil had this ability to stand and say, look, they're guilty. Do something. But verse 15, and he freed those who the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Why doesn't he help angels? From a theological point, he had to make a choice. Do I die for angels or die for humans? He died for humans. He became a human, and he died for us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, which he did. He became a human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. Propitiation is a big word. It means to satisfy God, and that is a deficient definition. Propitiation means to satisfy the anger of God. Because God does have to punish sin. And God does send anyone whose debt is not paid to a place called the lake of fire. And as much as we want to think that is make-believe, it is not. And if you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, on the day... Once you die, somewhere in there, I don't know exactly how the time sequence is, you will stand before God, and he will say, you need to pay for all the sins. Every sin that you commit requires your very life, your soul. There's a physical death. There's a spiritual death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You will stand before God having physically died, and now God is saying there is what is called the second death, as the book of Revelation calls it. And you now have to make payment. If you want to have eternal life, pay- your debt is due. The bill is there. For us who are believers, we are taught in the book of 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus will be our, like our attorney, and he will stand before God in judgment and say, I paid the penalty. I paid the penalty for Mike. Fill in your own blank, name, your name in the blank. So he says in verse 18... For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he also is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And that's the ongoing ministry as the priest that we have with him. Today, without having you go there, the reality of it is, even though Jesus has died, gone to heaven, sat at the right hand, and we can now place our faith in him, The reality of it is, is we all still have to face death because the curse hasn't been completely lifted. Jesus will say in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, before he dies, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And when that great passage is given, the reality of it is, is that today, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it is not a guarantee that you won't die. This morning, as I started thinking of my 27 years here, I can't. I started going through the roster of all the people that have come and were so faithful at our church that have lived and I've watched them die. And I thought, when I first became a pastor here and they commissioned me, and I thought to myself, if I could have got up that morning and said, you know, one of the things that you may not realize is that I'm going to stay because I feel like I'm a shepherd and I'm going to be faithful, but I'm going to bury all of you. And the reality of it is that I think I have buried almost everyone that was there that day. My point is is that death keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And as I've shared this morning already, what does a curse do? Death is part of the curse, and God has brought this curse on us so that we would never think that this world is okay. And death takes joy, and it's taking much joy out of my life. And I I don't know where all of you are with death in the sense of how you've maybe managed with your own death or you've managed with people who are, who are important to you. I've shared before... Because I get the privilege of talking to you But I'm sure you can remember When you first found out Someone that was important to you died For me it was on March 18, 1968 I can remember when my grandmother died My my aunt died Then my grandmother died September 5, 1979 It just goes on and on And then my mother died on January 27, 1982 I'm a date person But these are all painful but the one thing that you all recognize, too, is that death is coming for you. And here's this illustration I ran across this week. Imagine your life as a journey along a path. Remember, we talked about how these paths are connected. But your life is a path. You're on a path. And as you walk, you have a limited amount of time to reach your destination. And that destination is a fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams and the realization of all your ambitions and the achievement of all your goals. That's all of us. Everyone here is on a path. Now, imagine that as you're walking along this path, all of a sudden, you see a figure behind you, and that figure is death. Death is looming presence on this path, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you've been flitting around, and maybe you've been a child, and you've been having so much fun on your path, but then all of a sudden, as you're getting older, and you begin to realize there's someone behind you. It's death. Some Most of the time, you can't see death, but you know he's there, and he's going to catch up to you eventually. And it's interesting that in the Bible, God speaks of death as a personality in 1 Corinthians 15. So as you continue on your journey, death begins to to place obstacles in your place. Some of these obstacles are small and easily overcome, while others are more difficult and take longer to surmount. But with each obstacle, death draws closer and closer, reducing the time you have to complete your journey. At some point, death catches up to you and your journey comes to an end. No matter how far you have traveled, no matter how much you've accomplished, death puts a time limit on your life. And you can't continue on your journey indefinitely. At some point, you have to stop and face your ultimate destiny. This is how death puts a time limit on people's lives. And it forces us to confront our mortality and to make the most of time that we have until today. Until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see what the resurrection of Jesus does is it changes everything. And if you want application, here's application number one. You don't have to make a bucket list anymore. Because if you have eternity, and I've often thought about what I'm going to do for a million years sometime, because if I do something for a million years, and I use that with hyperbole for an extended long period of time, I've got endless amount of time. The resurrection, the empty tomb, tells me that I don't have to run around thinking that I've got to get all these things done in life and make what is called very popular today a bucket list. Get this done, get this done, get this done. They've even made movies about it. they made comedy movies about it. But the reality of it is, is I now can give my life in service to God and sacrifice, and I can do things for God because I don't have to have a focus on myself. I don't have to have a bucket list anymore. Neither do you. Nor do I have to get frustrated with things in life anymore because along my path, I didn't get to do this and I didn't get to do that and it didn't work out smoothly because I now have eternity. And I can focus thirdly on important things. I did a little Google search this week. If you had eternal life, this is from a secular perspective, what would you be able to do and I want you to think about this, and I'm going to apply every one of these. This is first from the secular perspective, but then this is from a biblical perspective secondarily. First and foremost, the site said, you could have increased knowledge. With unlimited lifespan, individuals could spend more time learning and mastering new skills. Well, there's the reality of it is that that is something that is now open to all of you. Second, it talked about endless experiences. An immortal person could have countless experiences traveling the world, learning about new cultures, and exploring new hobbies and interests. The potential for personal growth and fulfillment would be immense. Oh, my goodness. I cannot wait to finally get out of this body and into the new body. And I can't wait to see all the things that we get to do. I, I fully hope that we get to travel the universe. I do. When I first got saved, I used to tell people, hey, let's meet up, we're going to go to Jupiter and if those planets are still around. Third, you would have stronger relationships. Without the fear of death, relationships could be formed and maintained over an extended period of time, and this could lead to deeper connections, and that is true. We'll be reunited in heaven. We know that we will see people and know them. 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm not just throwing these things together. This isn't just from a secular site. This is truth. This is what scripture teaches. Fourth, we would have a sense of purpose with unlimited lifespan. Individuals could have the opportunity to pursue their passions and make significant contributions to society. Well, for us, we understand the perspective. God talks about the fact that we need to be focused while we're on this side of eternity. And then fifth to talk about how immortality could be a catalyst for personal growth with an unlimited lifespan individuals could experience personal growth and development and there's the reality of untapped potential for all of us This has to be one of the greatest truths and realities that we have for a future that is just unlimited what's coming death will catch us, it'll tackle us, but we get to rise up. Your death does not end your life anymore. Your death doesn't end life. You're going to be resurrected if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Second, very interesting truth. Turn to Romans chapter 6. If I'm going to try and understand why I should have so much joy, why this day is so remarkable, I'm going to remember this. Your sin no longer has to enslave you. Friday night, we talked about how the death of Jesus Christ pays a penalty, gets applied to everyone that believes. And when we come to the Book of Romans chapter 6, What you come, where the apostle Paul is saying, now that sin has been defeated, now because we have peace with God through the death of Jesus Christ, there's a new dynamic that happens. And part of what happened when Adam sinned, as he was our representative, you say it took this curse. And even though the word curse doesn't used, let me tell you, it is a curse that we all got thrown, whether you were, whether you're all thrown into the sin camp. And this is why babies die without ever consciously sinning. And then as you get older, your tendencies, your, your, your proclivities uh, are as that you would want to sin. And, and it's not until God comes and lives inside you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ that you have the ability to break the power of sin. And that's what Paul is describing. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, in essence, now that it's been paid for, now that we have freedom from death so that grace may increase? And he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And that's a spiritual baptism that we represent with the water. But that is a spiritual baptism. Verse verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that in Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. And what he's getting at is when you are a believer, there is a transformation that occurs. We're still in the flesh, but you're walking new. You're different. Hence, if somebody says they're a believer and they still play in the dirt and they still play in sin, that is why we would question your salvation. You're saved because of your faith, but your faith transforms you. You walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer, what? Be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. See? Death no longer is master over him. This is a little bit of what Hebrews 2 was referring to. For the death that he died, he died to sin for all that... The life that he lives, he lives to God. So even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin... So, verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Listen to me. What we need to understand is that sin has this curse over people. And sin says jump, and people say, how high? And I, you say, why? Because I've been with people, when they say, I can't stop drinking. I can't stop lying. I can't stop being sexually immoral. I keep dealing with this. I keep dealing with this sin, and And and, and it just controls their life. For people who are believers, you say, wait, Mike, I still struggle with things. Absolutely, you still struggle. But we see a break in the pattern. We see the power coming through. What we need to understand as we look at things that cause depression and frustration and discouragement, we have to understand is because God has allowed the curse of sin to be master over people. And this is something that is just horrific. And when we come to this passage and it talks about the fact that it works as a master over us, it brings in the imagery of slavery. And when I talk about slavery, I always have to mention it. We are not just talking about black people being slaves. 50% of the world were slaves when this was stated. And if you think that when we talk about slavery uh, and we're only talking about black people... Because that's the way it was in America. you got to reorient it. because God recognizes that all people, every human being is a slave to sin. Yes. And the reality of it is, is that I went again to a website that illustrated what is it like to have a master, to be a slave. And the reality of it is, is you listen to this. Number one, there is a loss of freedom. Slavery involves the complete loss of an individual's freedom and authority. You are forced to work against your will. And I thought to myself, isn't that an accurate picture of sin? Someone said, I can't stop stealing. I can't stop lying. I can't stop being depressed sometimes. And not every aspect of depression is, I get it, tied to sin. But there are aspects where people are just self oriented. You can't stop because sin controls you, it's your master. Exploitation is the second aspect of a slave master. Slavery often involves the exploitation of vulnerable populations, such as people who are poor, marginalized, or from minority groups, people who don't have the power. They may be forced to work in dangerous or unhealthy conditions and may be subject to physical or emotional abuse. Oh, my goodness. Whether it's emotional abuse or living in poverty, we recognize so much of this world where people feel like kicked in the face. It's because of sin. Sin makes somebody a corporate selfish pig where they don't care if everybody else has to work hard and sacrifice through 14, 15-hour days. They don't care if they have to send people to war for them because this is what they want. This is why maybe even someone in high school will take advantage of somebody else because they just don't care. Third aspect is dehumanization. Slavery treats people as objects of property rather than as human beings with inherent value and dignity. And we hear of people who are in the um, prostitution world where they grab little girls and they put them into these, these prostitution rings. He's like, how could you do this? Because that's what sin does. Sin treats people as property. But it's no different than the college student that that sees a girl and says, I'm just going to give her a a, a drug and I'm going to take advantage of her tonight. Or that guy that says, I'm going to go into business with you, but I'm going to steal from you because you're my partner, but I don't care because it's all about me. It dehumanizes. And sin has the master is saying, do it, do it, do it, because this is what I expect of you. We have to understand this incredible curse And then deals with economic injustice and deals with the legacy of taking advantage and and the fact that we're exploited. Look, when you're free from all of this, my application is there's incredible joy, there's incredible gratitude, there's incredible commemorating the experience, and there's the idea you just want to tell people I'm free. And that's why we as believers do that. We just wanna tell people we're free. Let me just take you quickly to the last one. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Oh, excuse me, I get this up here. The idea is that you can get control of your body now. You no longer have to have a master over you. And I would tell you today, if you're looking at your life and you feel like there's been no freedom, come talk to me, come talk to Carl, Sean afterwards. Listen, you gotta get free. You gotta get free. I am so thankful. Even though I still struggle, I still stumble, I can tell you there is incredible joy and peace for the people who are free. Get free today. But finally, your life doesn't have to be lived in vain. Vain is a word we don't maybe always use, but if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter we spent months going through when we were studying 1 Corinthians. It is the chapter that, above all chapters, goes into the detail of the resurrection and the body and all the ramifications. And it is interesting, this chapter that has so much about the resurrection, so much about how it's all going to happen, and even I believe it's a chapter that talks about the rapture, Isn't it fascinating that of all the things it ends up with, it ends up in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, the idea here deals with what Ecclesiastes talks about. Life under the sun is Empty. Life under the sun is vanity. Life lived apart from God is vanity. And it, I would encourage you this week, because we don't have time to go into the book of Ecclesiastes and to read it. Where and I think about this now because I'm older and I've worked hard on putting myself in a good financial position. And then I could die, and Becky could get remarried, and all of a sudden live with some like crazy guy who's gonna spend all my money. <laughs> That's just not fair. I've worked, I've slaved, there's how many times have I sacrificed and you've gone out and you've married this other guy and all he wants to do is spend my money? It's not fair. And you read Ecclesiastes and it talks about how somebody is wise and then somebody stupid comes along. You think about all that you do and all you work hard and you make your home and you make your life and you make your impact and when it's all said and done, you die and it's not worth anything. Anything. You work so hard to accumulate trophies. You work so hard to have whatever, even the assessment of knowledge. Oh, you should have read one of the obituaries this morning where this guy, he's a Ph.D., and you all see if you read the newspaper, and then all these things accomplished. And then when it got to the end, it showed it wasn't somebody who was a true believer. And it's like all for naught. You see, life Really, apart from God, has no purpose. And that is why the curse, when God tells Adam, it's thorns and thistles and things are going to break down. And when it's all said and done, you're going to die anyway. And you can get so despaired. You should feel like, this is lousy. This is a lousy world. Everything I do, everything I've sacrificed. And I can tell you, when I went to college and... I know we joke about I'm a little different, but I can tell you there were Friday nights, Saturday nights. All my friends are going out, and I'm studying and studying and studying because I just want to get ahead, and I want to get ahead. And I've known people like that, and they've done that. And then he got killed when they're 20s. It's like all for naught. But now, here I come. I'm at the end of my life almost, and I do think I'm 62 years old. And I looked at my life, and I've shared this before, where my goal was to be a multimillionaire, partly because we struggled with money. We didn't always have the medical care. My mother dies at age 43. and I never felt like we had enough medical care to take care of her, and I was never wanting to put my family in that same position. I wanted to be able to do things. My family never took vacations when we were kids. I wanted to always take my kids on vacations. And I get to the end of my life here, I'm in my 60s now, and I'm thinking maybe I have 20 years, but I'd love to have another 30, so live to 100. Whoever knows what God's going to do. But the reality of it is, as you come and you sit there, you say, what has it been for? And if I would have stayed a CPA and I would have accumulated an incredible career, I've already am past retirement age. And and they would have just said, Mike, move on. Someone else is going to replace you. And that is true for every one of you, no matter what. You can say, you know what? I'm not out there to make tons of money. I just want to learn how to, to make little models and I want to, or I want to plant gardens and I want to have the best garden. I want to be the best musician. I want to be the best storekeeper, whatever it is. I want to be the best mom. Guess what? Every goal that you have will fail. Life lived apart from God. It's all vain. It's all empty. But what God does is he gives your life purpose now. Because when you're a believer for Jesus Christ, what verse 58 is saying, when you work for the Lord, when you work for the Lord, everything you do now counts. And you'll be rewarded for it, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Oh my goodness, wow. So I can tell you, as someone that made a decision in his 20s to walk away from a world and not that everybody has to do this, but for me, walking away from the corporate world was a focus of like saying, I'm committing because everything I want to do is work for God. I can tell you it's been the right decision. And I want you, all of you, as we went last week and we talked about the fact that God gives everybody talents and abilities, and I've asked people who are here to rate themselves that, you know, if God gives you a level one talent, level five talent, level 10 talent, what level of talent are you? Are you producing fruit correspondent to the level that you are? As we said last week, and we don't want to forget lessons, right? Non-fruit bearing people don't go to heaven. But this lesson is a day of joy. This is a day of the fact that when you're here or you're at work, or you're at home, and nobody sees anything that you do. God sees. He will reward everything that you do. And that is why on this day, today, we remember that our life has purpose. And that's because what God said, what God said when he cursed Adam and the ground because because of what Adam did, Everything, everything has changed. And this morning, you might have come frustrated, you might come despaired, even as a believer, but the reality of it is, is that you now know death has been defeated. Enslavement to sin has been broken. And there's a purpose in life. I'm gonna close. I don't know if you've ever seen this painting. This is a painting, it's called Checkmate. It used to be in the Louvre. Did you see it when you went to the Louvre? This is by the, was by the Mona Lisa. A private person has now bought it. This was made by a painter, Moritz Ritz. I'm saying his name the best I can. It was painted in 1864, 1864 over in Europe. We're having the Civil War. He's painting this painting. And I don't know how well you can see it, but this is a human who's playing the devil. And his guardian angel is behind him. And the painter called this checkmate. Now, for those of you who know chess, when you yell checkmate, you're supposed to be at a place where victory is yours. And Satan is the one that has said checkmate. And so this painting... Gets purchased by a pastor, and it's in Richmond, Virginia, in the 1880s of all places. And he's having a get together, and it's this famous painting, and everyone can see the despair. And this is maybe the despair that you're in today, where you look at your life, and it's like a check chessboard, and you feel like life has gotten you beat. And as this pastor has a few guests over, one of the men, and this is a true story, and I went back and I, rec- I found it, was a pastor named Paul Morphy. And he's looking at this, and Paul Morphy, no, it wasn't a pastor, Paul Morphy is a chess master. And they were walking through this man's art gallery, it was wealthy, and he tells him about the painting and the despair. And as everybody was walking around, Paul, I guess, said, stop, wait a second, get a chessboard. And they took this chessboard and he played it out. And I don't know if the original painter did this. He calls it checkmate. Well, let me digress. Paul then plays out and he says, there's no checkmate here. As a matter of fact, the human is playing white. He shows taking this chessboard how victory is soon won. And I love this painting because it so depicts sometimes where we feel as human beings, that it's checkmate, game over. You get a cancer designation. You're in your 20s, you're gonna die. You hear about an accident, somebody's died early. Your business has failed. Someone breaks up with you. Someone divorces you. Someone walks out on you. Someone bad happens. You feel like your life is over. Checkmate. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as he showed, white wins, is where we go today. Jesus wins. And everyone that's on his team, Satan can never say checkmate to you. And even though you may go into the grave and the casket gets closed on you, one day that casket gets opened. And all your hopes and dreams and everything that you've ever wanted to do, everything that you've wanted to experience, you get to because Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. And now offers eternal life and all its blessings where death never hangs over you, where Sin never controls you and brings despair and brings frustration and brings hurt. And as death works to make you a slave and runs after you, you can say, (laughs) ha, ha, so what? None of us want to die physically, but the reality of it is, is death no longer enslaves us. Sin no longer enslaves us. And now everything that you do matters if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is futility. And I was thinking about, there are people that play video games 10 hours a day, and you think, how foolish. But there are people who go to work all day, and they make great corporations. And I think, how foolish, because everything is empty for life lived apart from Jesus Christ. Understand, this is a great message of hope for us who are believers. Live your life for Jesus, because everything you do for Jesus matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he suffered and paid a penalty. Legally, we can't always comprehend it, God, why he died and how he paid the penalty that we all owed. But now we understand it, God, and we are so thankful. I pray, God, that today there's this great super celebration in everyone's heart and they think about the ramifications of all that Jesus brought us and how the curse is lifted, and as we realize the curse is not, make believe. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.